0: It's a Tuesday evening and time for some riveting technology conversations. We are going around the globe and straight into the rest of the world right about now. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is City Trends. My name is Philip Ashon and this is City Trends. On the show today, we are going to have a rather interesting conversation looking at does digital education guarantee quality education? Yes, yes, yes. A lot of Um, Discussions have been going on about how a lot of schools are switching to an online sort of platform and government has set up a platform where schools can basically get access to reading materials and um, teaching and learning can go on. But really, does digital education guarantee quality education that is the conversation we're going to have today we're going to look at it from a global and africa-wide perspective um, with three persons and this conversation happened earlier today actually with um, um a group of people from all over the world um, over at um, um, ambitious africa and we're going to have matt arrow um and Salim, and um, laurie um javleto um, who are going to be joining us uh, for that conversation um So, just by way of introductions, Matt is um, an ecosystem orchestrator um, with um, Dream Apply and Teach Millions. Um, And Salim is a product associate at Longhorn Publishers. And of course, Laurie is a professor of practice at Alto university so it's going to be a very interesting conversation with lots of insight i do hope you stick around for it you can also join us with your thoughts and your comments on 0549-986-996 alternatively you can reach us on twitter using the hashtag c-i-t-i-t-r-e-n-d-s the show is live and interactive we have our segments also coming up and so don't go anywhere stick and stay Has your computer developed a problem you don't understand? Is your phone refusing to respond? Is there a computer virus you are battling with? Are you having problems signing into your account? Share your tech problems with CityTrends and we will get the experts to help you solve them. Send us your problems via WhatsApp number 0549986996. You can also send us a tweet using the hashtag (laughs) CityTrends. Share your thoughts and opinions on the show via the WhatsApp number 54 998 Tweet at us using hashtag CityTrend. So whether your school is organizing classes via Zoom or sending it on a specific platform or you are um, giving instructions to students on Google Scholar or Google Classroom or whichever. Well, basically, digital education has become the mainstay for quite a number of institutions um, who can't have the traditional form of instruction. And so um, this conversation has obviously led to... um, Basically, a rise in awareness of digital platforms that allow us to basically connect for educational purposes. But the question really is: Does digital education guarantee quality education? And so, for today's conversation, we we have Matt Arrow um, and Salim and Laurie um, Javiletto, who are going to share. Perspectives from a global standpoint, and of course also from an Africa-wide standpoint. Um, we started, or we start off the conversation with introductions from Laurie and Matt, and we delve straight into the discussion.
1: Uh, so yeah, my name is Laurie uh and uh, I'm a professor of practice at alta University and the co-director of Alt Ventures Program. Uh, and we're responsible for entrepreneurship education at Aalto University um, and uh, yeah, previously I was an entrepreneur for 22 years uh, working first 10 years in the music business, then I started this company called The Academy of Philosophy, that's a research and consulting company, uh, then I ran a technology startup for a while and then we started a learning game company together with Peter Westerbuck and Nicholas Hayden. And I'm operating
2: the founders of Rovio, uh, and I ran that for less than three years, and uh, I'm here. Hello, pleasure to be here. And uh, hey, Philip. Uh, hey. I'm an education innovator. I've been uh, working with education development for more than sixteen years, and I'm um, based in Estonia, but I've been working quite globally. Uh, um, been visiting many many parts of the world to uh, to support uh, countries with with developing their education. And maybe the most uh, interesting thing from the previous uh, things that I've done is um, we've set up um, a company called Dream Apply, which is a university admissions management platform, and it operates in about thirty five countries now, and supporting universities and uh, students to find each other and um, and have a Better dialogue, and uh, also uh, we have uh, set up a thing called TeachMillions.org, which is um, I will write in the chat the links as well, so everybody can see. And actually, if you have any questions uh, to me or I believe to other other speakers as well, please feel free feel free to ask in the chat, uh, so we we know your questions and then you can react. All right,
0: hello guys. Um, Thank you so much for making time to join us for this conversation. Um, does digital education guarantee quality education? And uh, Matt, um, you said you are an education innovator. Um, I guess you will be the best person for us to start all this chat with. Does, does all the innovation we've had in education and what we've seen um, over this pandemic period give us a sense that you know there's actually quality education and is it guaranteed necessarily just because it's innovative or it's a different approach to giving education
2: that's actually if you back look back in history then innovation of education is nothing new uh if you if you look in in 1400s or 1440s uh, uh, there there was the printing press invented and uh, that has uh, had uh, probably the probably the biggest effect so far to uh, making education affordable and reachable uh, to everybody because thanks to books we, we have access to um, all sorts of interesting knowledge. Um, but um, beforehand uh, we, we used uh, cave paintings to give uh, on information uh, as well. I mean, if you look back in a very ancient history. So, uh, but what we have seen uh, lately happening now within the last two and a half months or so uh, of course, is a, a very heavy digital innovation of education and um, I think we're, we're just scratching the surface at the moment of the possibilities of digital e- education and, and possibilities there. So, um, I mean, it, it depends on, on on the time span that we're looking at. Uh, so if you, if you look a little bit back in history again, uh, then you can see that uh, the pullpoint pen, which is now super popular and commonly used in schools all over the world. Um, and then this was actually invented in 1888, so uh, it's uh, almost 150 years ago. But it it took about 50 plus years to to uh, get the ballpoint pen used in schools. Um, uh, so it wasn't allowed actually in the beginning. And and when we look at the innovation that that is coming now um, from uh, digital space, which is uh, of course super new, and and we are trying to put it into schools straight away. Uh, then um, uh, it's, it's been around really, I mean, if you seriously look at innovation of education, I would say that cloud computing was uh, super uh, important to enable this kind of boom in, in digitizing educational services. And uh, of course, um, access to high quality internet uh, connections. So today we are in a situation where we can develop a really high quality tool for learning something, for example, multiplication table, and this can be used uh, all across the world. It doesn't matter where we are developing this tool. And actually, I'm inviting, uh, happily, uh, people from Africa, if you're uh, considering doing something interesting, look at uh, small verticals, narrow verticals for, uh, for solving concrete problems in education. Like Just an example is the, uh, the concretely, let's say, how to learn efficiently, how to multiply. Uh, in mathematics, and and through this kind of uh, innovations that are solving a small uh, concrete problem in education, but are very good at this, um, then we can have hundreds of thousands of different solutions uh, for learning various things globally, and um, and uh, through this we could improve the quality of education uh, well tenfold, and also very important is the accessibility to education. So. Um, Today, we, we know that there is about 260 million people globally that don't have any access to education. And, um, and through the improvement of technology, I'm sure that uh, a lot of this can be, can be solved. And also, um, if you look at statistics, then uh, the statistics is quite poor uh, when we um, look at uh, many countries' education systems. So the children are not developing very well in the education. So uh, I'm sure that if we provide really high-quality tools, uh, digital tools, to support the learners and teachers, we can uh, achieve a much higher quality learning experience uh, for, for the children as well.
0: Max, thank you so much. Laurie, um, you are a professor, academia. Um, I'm just wondering from you, sometimes it's one thing having the academic side of things and what could work and the theory of the education or the theory of digital education what we think could work but in terms of the practice of it i'm just wondering how practical um it sometimes is especially when you look at the differences in terms of resources in terms of geography it's it's very dynamic and it's very different depending on the country you're in or the geographical location that you find yourself in and so i'm just wondering it might be digital education, but is it really digital education for all in terms of its practice?
1: So yeah, I think it's a great question. Like you know that how, how does the kind of like you know the academic research and practice and relate to one another. Uh, I I personally think that like setting them apart is a kind of false dichotomy or like you know false distinction in the sense that. I mean, an academic research is also kind of like, you know, an innovation process, which means that much of the stuff that is done in universities turns out not to be that useful. But then, like, it also builds a kind of a foundation uh, from which all kinds of, like, sort of, aha, uh, things can arise from. Uh, But uh, ultimately, it boils down to, like, you know, well, the kind of school of thought that I adhere to is called pragmatism, uh, and it all boils down like, you know, that you have to stick with, with what works and especially I think with right now what's going on in digitalization, we are seeing at the university a lot of struggles with the sort of like, you know, like how to set up processes that would be quick and innovative enough uh, and yet be able to thrive in the academic setting and it's not always like super easy to make that happen. Uh, I would venture to say that in Finland, at least, like, all University is one of the best places to do that, though, because I think our university and our leadership has a very sort of forward-gazing uh, entrepreneurial uh, mindset about getting about doing things. But ultimately, I think it's important to, like, you know, to have the sort of foundational research ongoing so that people can sort of poke into, like, what works and what doesn't on a theoretical level. Uh, as long as we don't stick there and like you know get stuck with the theoretical, and we also have the you know the practical application of things, and for, like I said, ultimately what really like sort of uh, determines whether you know theory is useful is to see whether it actually works in real life or not.
2: Actually, I would jump in into this for for a moment if I may. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, If you look at innovation, then uh, a lot of innovation is actually not good innovation. Interesting. What we we need to do when we look at education innovation is um, to figure out efficient ways how to quickly understand if this innovation is actually practical uh, and useful for solving some concrete problems or improving the quality of education or if it's useless. And uh, this... uh, because digital innovation of education is quite new, uh, the models are not there yet. So um, uh, how to figure out if an innovation is good? And, and uh, today it's very much relying on the, on teachers. So teachers are often feeling overwhelmed by the new solutions that are, are offered out there. And uh, this is not a good situation to be, because if you look at, there, there is um, uh, 100 million plus teachers globally, and today all of them one by one are going through... Um, probably we're talking about 10,000-plus new digital innovations in education that are stemming, mostly they are less than 10 years old. Yeah. So, so um, and, 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 and if you look at who are making these innovations, then mostly these are students themselves. The, the students are trying to come up with solutions how to solve some of the problems that they saw themselves uh, in their education. So, if you look at that, like, uh, for example, in Northern Europe, uh, where, where we are coming from with Lauri then here we have more than 500 uh, like education uh, development startups. And uh, all of them are looking for solving a, a concrete problem in education and trying to make something nicer for the teachers or for the learners. Um, but, um, or for universities or, or governments as well sometimes. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, that's the headache. Like how can we find out uh, what's the best solution? And um, we have even together with Finnish colleagues put together um, a schema of how, how this could be done. And I'm actually going to paste the link to uh, to the schema in the chat so uh, everybody who, who are interested can look at the Leonardo initiative <laughs> and uh, and happy to comment on this more if you're in. I Appreci- appreciate it, uh, Matt. Anne, if I
0: may bring you in. so. Clearly, we we come we've come to a crossroads of sorts, um, where we have to marry the theory of the the changes we want to see in education globally, as against the practical side of it. You are you are involved knee deep, of course, in the development of digital products and digital content for educational purposes. And I'm just wondering, from from your point of view as well, um, how do we marry the two? to get the very best of, of, of the situation.
3: Um, well, hi everybody. My name is Anne Salim from Nairobi, Kenya. I work with Longhorn Publishers, a Pan-African publishing house, and I build and design digital learning solutions. So uh, to answer the question, Philip, uh, actually, it's really tricky. Uh, we used to say 10 years ago, and it's still current now, that uh, the technology is 10% and the 90% is the people who are implementing it. So in this case, those of us who are building these solutions are trusting that the parents, the teachers, the schools and the administrators will implement the solutions for us with the target audience who are the learners, right? And so I can build a very, very good product, but if you don't have a way to access it, then there's, um, I will not get very far. Or if uh, so, for example, with our case in Longhorn, uh, when the COVID started, we made the platform free. And then very quickly, we realized that people don't have bundles to access the platform. And so then we had to partner with Telecos to create to get free bundles so that people can be able to access the platform via bundles. But then we learned that a lot of our content is static, and you have to access it on a computer. So then we had quickly make it mobile responsive. And then after we learned that, oh no, we need to add videos, we need to engage the learners. And then you have this platform where every day the needs are evolving, and every day the learners are asking for something new.
0: Did you, did you ever get to a point where you actually went through a day without having to ask yourself some of these questions?
3: No. No. <laughs> <It's the same. laughs> But but I must say something that I found really exciting and I'm looking forward to scaling. Um, The technology is also providing an advantage. So one time we started doing this virtual classes with teachers and then you have a thousand students checking in in a day. I mean the regular classroom can support what 50 to 100 students and now you have a thousand learners accessing your platform and trying to engage with you. And so the technology is really good where it's providing us access to new learners that we can engage but on the other hand there are so many complications to meet the learners where they are at, and a good technology has to match and meet the learner at their point of need yeah. So I mean it's quite an exciting times to be building learning solutions yeah.
0: That's a fantastic point then. Um, Anne, with you know your 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 experience on the continent as well, and you did mention some of those some of the unique challenges on the continent, access to bandwidth and things like that. But one of the key things is, you know, you can build a solution, just like you said, but the people who actually do the educating, the teachers are also a fundamental part of getting that solution across. Um, What can be done to equip them better, you know, to be able to have access to these tools that will Mm. make learning easier? I mean, a, a classic example you have an online learning platform or online school, whatever, and you build all these modules and everything. But if the teachers are not diligent enough to go through each process with each student, be online at a particular time, have the patience to draw out the lesson notes and everything, those are the practical sides of it. And if the teachers don't have that, they can't pass the knowledge on. And so I'm just wondering, practically on the continent and with everything that we know, How can we get those teachers in a position where they can actually give the right instructions or guidance to students? Uh,
3: uh, A very good question, Philip. Uh, Actually, one of the most exciting things that's happening is the teachers usually have their own WhatsApp groups and Telegram groups and forums where they engage. So currently, there's a lot of webinars going on uh, on training teachers on how to get online and how to share their resources with minimal tools like PowerPoints and and WhatsApp audio and all these other things. And so how we're doing it is we're first getting the teachers in forums and workshops where we take them through an online training and then we guide them by helping them and showing them how to upload their notes and how to join the Zoom calls if we're having virtual classes. Uh, Another thing is there's a WhatsApp group for teaching in a continent offline uh, that's really good with people across the world where we're sharing resources for success stories that have worked. Uh, So we're seeing people from Asia, from Latin Americas, and also from Africa, different parts of Africa sharing, oh, this is what I'm using, this is how it's working, this is some of the resources, here's a link where you can access it. So also sharing these resources and creating the knowledge of how to do it is, is really helping the teachers get online faster. Uh, our government has also broadcasted the lessons and, on TV and radio, and, and we're seeing a lot of education innovators as well taking their content to the YouTube and, and other virtual platforms. So there's more access right now in terms of, and more visibility, people are sharing the stories. So we have to make the teachers aware of what's available, and then you have to teach them how to use it, and then encourage them. And sometimes they quit and they leave the group because they are frustrated. That maybe they had one learner online when they were teaching, but we encourage them that since we are recording the sessions, this session can be viewed later, and then they will be able to access it. Sorry, yeah, see Matt. See
2: Matt
4: please do
0: come in. I, I, I see you have a point of it there.
2: Yes, uh, uh, a lot of these things that we are going to be discussing today are are discussed all over the world, uh, mm. of course, at the moment as we speak, and. Um, uh, you know, Estonia is one of the leading education countries in the world. Um, we we are number one in in Europe according to PISA uh, test now. And uh, I'm I'm not a super big fan of PISA, but uh, it, it's a little bit. Um, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and uh, what we did was uh, we started a collaboration with the Estonian government to um, set up a webinar series uh, that uh, other people in the across the world could have a look at as well. Uh, to uh, To learn a little bit of the Estonian experience, and uh, this is um, available in YouTube for free uh, for watching. <laughs> yes, P- Peter, um, if you look at the the chat, then uh, there is good comments actually coming there. And uh, <laughs> it's very interesting.
0: It's very interesting. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the point that you made, it looks like quite a number of people have their own
2: reservations. But please continue with the point you're making. Uh, so. Uh, yes, you can just Google in uh, in YouTube, uh, look for Education Nation uh, webinars and, uh, and maybe there is something that could be interesting for you to have a look at. Um, there is so many different methods available, how we could support the teachers uh, and learners to understand better how to, uh, how to take digital tools on board um, that are meaningful for the learners or the learning. I'll just give one example. Um, what I've seen as a trend uh, lately is that uh, very often uh, it's a lot of work for the teacher to uh, to understand uh, how, how a certain tool works in the digital uh, environment. And uh, what they have been starting to do is they, they start to ask kids or children to uh, prepare uh, usage of a certain tool in the class. So, so actually uh, it, the education becomes uh, factually better quality already through this that uh, the kids themselves... Uh, can, who, are, who are more tech-savvy often than the teachers? They can uh, bring up uh, new new ways of learning something in a more fun way or more inclusive way to other kids, and and um, and then have uh, a say in how we're setting up the concrete uh, class. So and and, and it's been it's, it's not very easy to start in the beginning, but uh, when the teachers kind of get it, how to uh, invite the students to to put in uh, their effort in preparing the class. It's becoming uh, very, very interesting. Laurie, uh, if,
0: if you can jump in here, I wanted to ask you um, about, um, yes, we, we can be very excited about what the possibilities are globally. We can be very excited about collaborations, you know, but one of the things that also is very important is from a policy standpoint and how important policy is. And so for you, how crucial is policy in this transformation drive? And what are some of the lessons, you know, from the northern country that if you can share about a digital policy for education generally, you know?
1: Um, Great question. Uh, I've personally become quite disillusioned about policy and and lobbying, to be honest. Uh, I've done my fair share of that. both in Finland and, and abroad, uh, in the U.S. and some other countries. Uh, and the problem is in Finland, actually, like, you know, um, uh, I mean, we're also, like, you know, along with Estonia, one of the leading uh, uh, educational uh, superpowers in the, in the world. Uh, and one of the cool things that we managed to get done in Finland was that in 2016 we segued into this new uh, basic curriculum. That basically, like, you know, if you read the documentation, it's beautiful. It takes into account everything we know about learning about, like, you know, uh, right now it's very, like, focused on, like, self-directed learning, on motivation, on things like that that used to be, and still are quite alien to schools uh, across the world. And the fact is, like, you know, if I take a look at, for example, like, the stuff I've found out in my research is, you know, if people don't care about what they study, they don't really learn. They're able to maybe, like, replicate some roads, facts for, you know, a set amount of time and, you know, sort of... They act as if they learn, but if they don't care, they don't really retain the memory of, of like, you know, of the topic. So Finland, we've actually taken this seriously, we have, like, self-oriented learning, we have digital learning, we have, like, you know, phenomenon-based learning, all of this stuff that really sort of, like, you know, the state of the art, uh, both in practice and theory, points towards the should normal. norm. Uh, and the problem is that, like, you know, even though the policymakers have sort of, like, you know, really kind of doubled down on this, how to how to make you know our country the sort of like um, uh, kind of like the next generation of, of learning. Uh, despite that, there's a huge amount of sort of grassroots uh, opposition to that. And I think the actual like you know the way we can really enact change uh, is actually not starting from the top down and from making, but that, rather like you know that we need to start being troublemakers on the grassroots level and like become begin disrupting how schooling works to begin with. And, and to that end, I still believe strongly in, for example, like, you know, back when I was working with, uh, you know, Peter in, in Ravia uh, uh, on this, like, fun learning concept, uh, we identified a couple of sort of, like, key features uh, of, like, you know, where, kind of like where we can take the learning from gaming to education. And, and, and one thing that I really like, you know, I got a lot of knowledge from, especially now at other universities, is this concept of casual learning. So basically instead of like, you know, having learning that you take a book and you read that and you spend 45 minutes or two hours doing that. And, and Or even worse, like, you know, your teacher forces you to do that and you hate that and you're sort of like, you know, play acting as if you were reading it when actually your mind is doing something totally different. Uh, we should like basically, you know, take a lesson from Angry Birds and take a look at like, you know, how we can chunk that stuff that same self same information into bits that are about like, you know, two to five minutes uh, each. So that people can actually, like you know, do that learning whenever they feel like it, wherever they happen to be. And this is, I totally agree with Matt's uh, like original point about how like education innovation has taken place, uh, you know, throughout the last century. But we are for the first time in the history of humankind we are in the situation where we have these pretty amazing like you know portals that we can use to access all that information. Uh, and we didn't have that ten years ago, and we didn't even have that accessibility five years ago, because the you know, like online connection things weren't still good enough. But now we do. And, and that, that leads us to the point that, like, you know, I, I think what really, instead of lobbying, instead of like worrying about policy making, like, what, what we've seen in Finland, like, you know, revolution we should. And that's why I think we should more focus down on application, more focused down on, like, you know, how to make you know, most of the MOOCs out there are still sort of like you know kind of replications of the classroom event. For like you know, you, s- you sit by your computer for one hour looking at a teacher speak, and that doesn't really translate well online. And we should rather like take a those do- take a look at those those like you know um, practices that work well online, like games, social media, like you know online platforms, stuff like that, and take the structure learnings from there and sort of like you know flip education that model. And when we, when we bring that down on the grassroots level, I mean, the policy is going to have to change eventually, but when it comes down at the grassroots level, then it takes the students along, then it takes the teachers along, then it brings everybody else along, and we don't have to, like, you know, wait for the trickle-down effect from the policy-making to take place, because, it, you know, if we do it that way, it's going to take another 20 years, and we don't have, you know, honestly, we don't have time for that. Sorry worry about the rant, but, I mean, I, that's
0: not the way because it looks like somebody needs to hear the rants. So thank you. Thank you for the rants there. Um, Anne, um, so yes, we need to basically be troublemakers. Um, how can we do that? Anne, if you can just chip in. Matt, I'll come to you in a quick second. Anne.
3: Uh, I, I mean, I have controversial opinions. Uh, first, I think we need to change how we approach learning. I think we've structured learning to Focus always on the classroom. We need to change the idea of what a classroom is. Um, Learning can happen at home with my parents, with with your nieces or nephews or kids. Um, I I mean, always thinking that I have to learn in a classroom where the teacher has to be present. Uh, That mindset needs to expand a little to focus on, I can teach myself something, I can acquire a new skill by attempting an experiment. Uh, That's where I think we need to start. But also, we need to widen the pathways to learning. For a long time, we focused on just uh, formal and informal education, but there's some non-formal education choices. Like Remember, especially for Africa, a lot of the choices of someone's career or how they'll grow is dependent on what they've been able to experience or if the people around them have access to education. And, and so how do we widen the gap of this lack of access to education with those who have access to education? We have to create more opportunities for people to be able to try things, do things differently. And technology is helping us with that. But at the same time, uh, we can use blended approaches to mix it up. I don't know if it's making sense.
0: Thank you so much for that. Matt, you had um, something you wanted to add to what Laurie
5: was saying, I guess
2: yes I, I fully agree with lauri regarding the policymakers i've, I've been pushing uh, policy on both on the estonian government level and also for the uh, for the european union level and a bit uh, uh, working with un and and oecd as well so there is uh, i've i've also got quite some experience and i agree with lauri that it's very hard at the moment to uh, get the wheels turning in a reasonable direction at the same time i feel that um, um, the things are moving in a, in a positive direction. And, uh, for example, what we have achieved in Estonia, and I really enthuse African countries to do the same, uh, is to try to set up a dialogue between the decision makers and the top policy makers, like the ministers of education and the uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, in innovators. Because today, uh, if there is no dialogue, uh, then uh, it's very hard for the policy makers to even theoretically support uh, the innovators in education. But if we establish a little bit of dialogue and so the people start speaking and start creating some kind of a little bit of trust uh, between each other, then we, we are in a, in a much more hopeful situation. And at least the policymakers will will not work actively against uh, the new innovators and startup founders in education. At least this is my, my hope. And I've seen that uh, developing in Estonia very nicely. So uh, every half a year or so we have now... A meeting with the management and the minister of education and the management management of the ministry of education and uh, between last time there was about 10 edtech startup founders at the meeting as well so i think it's just a really good basis already to uh, have uh, a new and better quality uh, policy being developed and and you you might ask like why we do why do we need this i mean in the covid time it's, it's becoming very clear that we need really high quality tools uh, to do digital and distance learning but um uh, if you if you look at uh, why more uh, in details then uh, what Lauri also was talking about is uh, we need to start uh, asking about what is the purpose of education in the 21st century i mean um, it, it doesn't make sense to, to use industrial time education system uh, in yeah. in the 21st century anymore i mean uh, we didn't we don't need factory workers uh, by the thousands anymore we need clever people that are able to lead their life and and um, and uh, uh, figure out complex issues on their own. So, so the output for the school has changed dramatically and, and I believe it's uh, happening all over the globe uh, the same way. Uh, The countries that are still focusing on industrializing their their countries, I think they have uh, totally misunderstood the opportunities of the information era and uh, they're not taking advantage of of these possibilities that are available now. I mean, literally, you could sit in Ethiopia and serve uh, American customers. There is no barriers in doing this. So why aren't we developing our children to be able to do this uh, with, with the school system? And I will bring maybe just a few examples, like about the research that is coming up now as well, about the new innovative tools for learning. For example, I was just talking to an Icelandic innovator of education uh, recently, and uh, he did a study, a PhD study, uh, for uh, using flow theory in education development. And flow theory says that um, uh, people need to be about 85% of the time right in what they're doing so they would feel accomplished and if they're 100% right uh, or all the time right then and they never fail then they become bored and they drop off the learning and if they are more than 20% wrong then uh, it seems too hard and they're also dropping off so uh, and they built based on this theory a mathematics learning application and uh, what they found was uh, that uh, uh, the, the kids so it's tar- targeted towards the early years, like uh, first and uh, second grade uh, students. And what they found was that the kids are developing up to 12 times faster compared to uh, traditional curriculum-based studies. Because uh, we are straight away using them. Well, flow theory is actually nothing new. It's a quite old theory. Very often, it's, it, it can be funny that uh, there are 100 years old theories that are still not applied in school systems but they are really effective theories
0: yeah. for... for you know. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Funny.
1: Yeah, because I mean, like, that's great, and it's really great that you have some other problems with education if it's done right. Um, and I'm actually not even exaggerating or kidding about that, but uh, getting that, getting it right is the tough part. Uh, the funny thing is, like, you know, when you mentioned employees from, like, 1970s, I think me has heard. First- 1975, uh, but the interesting thing is, like, you know, uh, if you take a look at like writings from Maria Montessori. I'm um, trying to do early 20th century or late, late. So, so I mean, those guys pretty much already did education rights more than 100 years ago, and we still haven't been implemented. Have this much idiotic, sort of factory-based, kind of like industrial model of like everybody needs to get everything at the same time, um, and ultimately it's about
0: uh, actually. It's not sorry, Laurie, just a quick second, and if can you mute your microphone for us, please. Thank you. Sorry, um, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah, so, so a son, who's like the sort of like the factor of learning uh goro in Finland. So she posted today this Twitter image of like what's the difference between equality and equity. And I think that sort of nails it all down like, you know, that equality is like the sort of factor model where everybody gets the same amount and equity is where everybody gets what they need. And that's, you know, basically what Do and Modestori cracked already like in, in you know hundred years ago. So we're not talking about rocket science here. We're not talking about like some sort of like magical 21st century innovation. We're talking about basically treating human beings as human beings. Uh, And like, or like actually, like I really love this. A couple of years ago, we were in Singapore with Peter and he in a TV interview, he he told the the interviewers that, uh, and Peter, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you know, that in Finland, children are people too. And that's, I think, like, you know, that in schools, we should start treating you know, children as people too. And that's, that's, I think it all boils down to that. And like, people are active, people are curious, people want to, you know, do great stuff. People want to feel a a sense of achievements. And just getting down to that, getting to the point where you, you you can operate at your own level in this, like, you know, Miha has this model called the flow channel, where you're basically operating between what Mark just described, like, between boredom and anxiety and, like, you know, getting to that sort of, like, you know, sweet spot, which is highly individual for everybody else, pretty much, you know, solves education. And that's why I'm, I'm so excited. That's why I have talked about that. I mean, I think policymaking still matters. I think, you know, I still do lobbying myself, and I'm, I'm probably not going to ever stop that, because, like, you know, it's still important also. To, I totally agree with Mark, but, like, you know, it's totally, it's important to get the buy-in also from the ministry level and policymakers. Uh, but at the same time, I think, you know, if we really want to have an impact, it has to start hands-on with the applications, because, like, like I mentioned in Finland, I think our policy is already there. I mean, we, we, I, in, in the basic curriculum in Finland, I don't really see much that needs to be changed. But the way, if you go to a Finnish school, they're not actually implementing that curriculum in the in the way that is written down, but they're doing still as much as they can in the traditional industrial way. And then when I talked with, like, you know, back in the White House when they still had the same president, like, you know. And I talk with those guys, like you know, and, and like you know, they, they would tell me, like you know, that this could never work in the United States. And I'm like, you know, that okay, so like, and, but even in the country where the policy is there already, the implementation is not. And even the days we can fix much faster by like you know, developing application, developing platform, doing all. I mean, there's a ton of links already in the chats where where you can like you know find find lots of like ways. You can do things straight away, not waiting, you know, for 20 years for the policy to trickle down. But right now, today, you can go online, you can go to those links that Mark posted or, like, you know, a ton of other people have posted amazing stuff there as well. And start doing, like, straight after this session, even during this session, if you think we're too boring or whatever. So,
0: anyway just a quick one Matt Anne, if, if I may just come come to you Laurie, Matt I'll, I'll come to you in a second and if, if I may come to you so we've gotten to this point once again where you know it's we have an ideal situation of where we want to get to we have ideal examples that we can learn from we know what we need to do and talk us through what the African experience should be moving on from here you know I mean, anybody could be watching this in two months, in two years, in a week's time. Talk us through what needs to be done based on everything that we've heard from all of you so far, us against what the current situation is and what needs to be done for us to get to the next level. And
3: Well, uh, I just want to add what Laurie said. Policy exists, but implementation has been the biggest barrier. And, the, and why implementation has been a barrier is one, funding is limited in this region. And so uh, we need to find alternative ways of financing education programs. I think for a long time we've relied on government to fund it or grants to fund it. Uh, And now we're looking at individuals who are focused on just pushing education agenda, finding alternative ways to fund any of these programs that are successful. Uh, Another way that we can scale education in Africa is scaling the solutions that work. We have so many small projects being implemented that are scattered. And, and it's very hard for people to scale in small uh, when you're when you're only accessing a small group. So finding a way to scale the technology solutions that have proven to work is something that I think we're really big on right now in Africa. So we figured out virtual classrooms are working. So now finding a way to create more access to the virtual classrooms, for example, would be something like that. Um, and then the blended learning approach. Uh, We've focused so much on the teachers, but we also need to remember that the parents are also teachers, or the caregivers are also teachers. So how can we cascade the curriculum down to the parents and the teachers? In Kenya, we have this competency-based curriculum happening right now uh, for the early year grades, and now we're seeing parents having to spend time actively learning with their kids before the responsibility was solely on teachers, and now parents are forced now to start learning and teaching with their kids. So how can we use technology to scale also this kind of things? With Longhorn, we've built some really good competency-based apps uh, that we're launching into the market this year in piecemeal. Uh, but alongside with that, I think collaboration is key, collaborating with different players in the region, uh, coming, up, coming together often, we have this EdTech meetup in East Africa where Once a month on the third Wednesday of the month, we meet up and we exchange ideas. We share what works, what doesn't work and how to improve. So a lot of collaboration, alternative ways to finance and also the blended learning approach where we're involving not only the teachers, but also the caregivers and the parents, I think.
0: And thank you. Matt, your concluding comments, please.
2: I would uh, like to really add on top of what Annie was uh, also saying. Uh, those re- there are really interesting business models coming up uh, as I'm, I'm seeing all around the place. For example, uh, there's a Lithuanian company called BitDegree that has developed a really interesting uh, online learning environment for um, improving your digital skills, and it's it's mostly for professionals that uh, that want to have a job in IT. Uh, but uh, what they've been experimenting with is uh, basically setting up um, um, small scholarship funds. So if you fill uh, if you do a course, then uh, and and you finish the course successfully uh, online, then you can get like a 10 or 20 euro scholarship uh, for as a, as a result of this. And uh, these are put up by companies that are interested in, to employ these uh, these people afterwards. So they, uh, if, if people are finishing the, the the courses, then the companies will be able to uh, uh, search for suitable staff members afterwards out of this um, um, thing. And I, I think it's a totally nice deal. I mean, everybody wins. And um, uh, also, I would like to stress out the teachmillions.org uh, that I mentioned in the, in the comments as well. We've, we've asked uh, more than 100 companies have joined this, and we've asked companies to give out their solutions, their high-tech uh, solutions for free to use uh, at, the, at the time of the, the pandemic. And, and so there are really nice and, and sometimes also expensive solutions um, uh, available for free. And, and go, go ahead and uh, check them out and, um, and take advantage of, of this opportunity. I mean, it doesn't happen uh, too often that we have a global uh, closure of schools.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know. right? It's, it's not every time that it happens. Laurie, um, can we take your closing comments on, on, on the session?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think we just need to push forward and, like, you know, not get stuck on, on, on things like policy or, or details. And I think, like, ultimately it boils down to, I mean, like, like what Peter commented there in the chat, that, like, funding is not a problem, and I agree with that, like, you know, that we shouldn't really, like, you know, also, like, you know, use the kind of traditional methods how to solve this, but rather, like, double down on, on finding, for example, like I think there's a tremendous business opportunity for startups and other like you know growth companies in education, and we should really like look into that space uh, rather than looking for you know the traditional like government or non-governmental funding, and like try, try to find out where are the interfaces where we can have a real uh, you know value provided to to the learners in a way that also like you know can translate into a business, and then like you know if you you know if you work that out, you won't have any problem with funding whatsoever. Um, and ultimately I think it boils down to I, think, I really like it that Martin brought up the flow theory because like you know we really need to figure out how to treat people as people, how to find individual interests and how to you know flesh them out in people and how to give people enough uh, choice in, in learning both online and offline that they can really sort of gravitate towards those things that they care about and keep on learning more and more exciting stuff about those. Brilliant, uh, yeah. brilliant thank
0: you so much um, Laurie and Annie, your final comments, please. And you have a minute.
3: Well, um, I'm very excited that this conversation is happening. Let's keep engaging online uh, and even in the deal rooms. Uh, I think I'm excited that we're now expanding the classroom from just the traditional classroom to virtual classrooms. And, uh, and so let's look for more in- inclusive models where we can encourage more learners to get connected and get access to the knowledge.
0: Those were some very, very powerful comments there um by the members of the panel. It was a, a very worthwhile conversation, truly. Um of course you know um you know the conversations will be available as a podcast after um the show tomorrow morning. So you can take a listen again if you would want to find out um, exactly what happened. We have some comments on social media, however, and um, due to time we're just going to jump straight into the app segment of the show. And Jeffrey has um some options for you today.
6: Um, yes, uh, so the app tonight it's called Dragnet, D-R-U-G-N-E-T. It's where a platform where you can order for medicines, just as you order for food on some platforms. Mm. So if your medicine has to be bought monthly, there's an option for that. There are other options too. So let's listen to Otuo talk about the app.
4: Hi, my name is Samuel Otuo-Cerovo. I'm a pharmacist and director for Samu's Pharma Limited. I want to introduce to you an online pharmacy app. It is called Dragnet. D-R-U-G-N-E-T. It is available on both Play Store and the App Store. And the app is powered by Samu's Pharma Limited. Drugnet is a very simple pharmacy app where users can easily order all their drugs, upload prescriptions and pictures of drugs or any pharmacy product and get them delivered right at their doorstep. The app currently operates in Accra and Tema. And every delivery made to any part of Accra and Tema comes at a fee of only 5 cities. You can also call a pharmacist on the app and schedule a refill for your routine drugs or medications. We advise that in these times of COVID-19, let's all stay safe by observing the various personal hygiene and social distancing protocols. Let's avoid crowded areas and if possible, let's stay at home. If you need any drugs or medications, don't step out and expose yourself to the virus. Just go on the Drugnet app and upload all your drugs or speak to our team of pharmacists and your drugs will be delivered to you. If you have further inquiries on Drugnet, you can call or WhatsApp the number 050 one three eight, two nine zero zero. Okay, so
6: um, that was Drugnet. So basically, you go on the platform, you order your drugs. The good thing is that this platform, the people who have it also have their own pharmacy. So you just uh, do it, and then you don't have the problem of having any doubts because they have it, and they also have partnerships with other pharmacies if That's they don't good. have their drugs.
0: That's good. So Dragnet, yeah. Drugnet. D r u g n e t. Yeah um Dragnet is the app for today well thank you so much and how can people get in touch with you um
6: just follow me on twitter my handle is oj sapon o-j-s-a-r-o-p-o-n-g yes if
0: you have an app um especially if you're a local developer and you have an app you want us to basically review and talk about on the show please get in touch with him we jump now to the your tech segment and that is brought to us by ellen Dapa.
7: hello guys good evening as i would always ask how is everybody doing? I hope you are well. I hope your family is well. Your friends are well. Everybody around you is well. So what we are going to do today is going to be a little bit different. So what is going to happen is that I would read today's issue and then we would try as much as possible to explain what is going on and then give solutions as to how best we can address this issue. So for Mawulolo, I hope I got it right. The handle is mawululu. He tweeted at me and he basically has a problem downloading and installing apps from Google Play Store. He uses an ITEL tablet. So what he sent me was, he says, The problem is when I am downloading from the Play Store, the app downloads up to 100%, but it doesn't install. It rather starts downloading from 1% again. I have done everything possible, but I can't download an app. I even did a factory restore settings, but I am unable to download. He says, what do I do? Or he's asking what he should do. Hopefully, we have something for him and for anybody else going through this problem. Let's listen to what our tech gurus have to say about foos issue.
5: All right, guys. For today we want to talk about how to avoid problems with installing apps on your mobile phone. That is from the Android Play Store and also from the Apple Store. Installing apps from the Apple Store is usually much more trouble-free. Once you have all the latest updates installed on your phone, you don't really have much issues. But on Android, sometimes it can be a bit problematic. These are a few points to note. One, always make sure you have enough storage space on your target storage device. That is, if you are installing to a card, make sure there's enough space. If you are installing to the phone memory, make sure there's enough space. Make sure you have a fast, stable internet connection. If you are installing to a card, make sure the card is of good quality. If the quality of the card is poor, it can cause a lot of problems, especially with your apps, and they will fail. Best, they will work, but the app performance will be very poor. Also, from time to time, clear your cache or data from your Google Download Manager. Also, make sure that the Google Services is updated. The Play Store itself is also updated. Once these things are have been done you are sure to have a very trouble-free app installation process i hope this helps all the best and see you next time
7: so basically i think it's all about trying to get as much space as possible so you would be able to download your stuff if all this doesn't work then you probably have to uninstall the play store and then download it or reinstall it back again also, if the process doesn't help fix your issue, you can try repeating it for Google Play Services, Google Services Framework, and Download Manager. Definitely one of these would work for you and one of these will solve your issue. Thank you very much for staying with us. As usual, get in touch with me on Twitter. The handle is at EADAPA. The DAPA is D-A-P-A-A-H. And we would always be there to help you out. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. 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 Indeed. Well, let's get straight into the trending segment of the show with Mr. Entry.
8: Thank you, Philip. And I welcome you all to the biggest stories in the technology ecosystem. This week, I bring you up to speed information on MFARMA's latest round of funding, the launch of exposure notification system by Google and Apple, Facebook's rebranding of Libra wallet Calibra to Nova. To our first story, Ghanaian health tech company Pharma which provides innovative financing and inventory management solutions to hospitals, pharmacies, and patients, has reportedly raised $17 US million in funding. According to the company, this round of funding is going to help them expand their vendor management inventory system and quality RX platforms in Ghana, Kenya, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. This funding comes after its series A and B, Where they raised 6.1 million US dollars in 2017 and 14 million US dollars in 2019, respectfully. To our next story, Google and Apple's exposure notification system API is finally out. The API was made public last week Wednesday. The debut joint project by Google and Apple will help public health agencies in building contact tracing apps for the general public. The API is designed to notify individuals of potential exposure to others who have confirmed cases for COVID-19. According to both companies, they don't plan to create an exposure notification or a contact tracing app themselves. However, they confirmed that over 20 countries across five continents have already asked for the API and they are going to use it in their contact tracing apps. Moving to our last story of the week, Some 11 months ago, Facebook unveiled Libra, a blockchain digital currency which was supported by a non-for-profit organization, Libra organization, which had members which included MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, Uber, Shopify and others. But later last year, some of these companies backed out of the project due to some misunderstanding. Today, Facebook has rebranded Calibra, the cryptocurrency base for its blockchain digital currency, to Nova, which is clearly trying to communicate that the Libra project isn't a Facebook project, but one for all. According to Facebook, Nova's first project will be a cryptocurrency wallet based, which will work as a standalone app and will also be available via Messenger and WhatsApp to help make it possible to send and receive money digitally. If Libra succeeds, the world will introduce to a new form of currency which may compete with our CD or even the dollar. This brings us to the end of the weekly set of trending stories in the technology ecosystem. You can follow me on Twitter at OI Entry. Over to you, Philip
0: and that's particular one for me it was one of the biggest stories of the week but that is all time will allow us on the show today it was a pleasure coming your way the show will be available as a podcast first thing tomorrow so please look out for it by, by 8 a.m on all your podcast platforms so please look out for it and take a, a listen a big thank you to all my guests on the on on, on the show today thank you so much for everybody um, who tuned in who sent in a message as well so next week please do stay techie <laughs>